the Rochester Savings Bank in upstate New York, there's a young man named George. He's grown up poor. Well, his family was well off for a while, but when he was seven, his father passed away. His family was left with little savings and no income. His mother takes in boarders at the family house. She cooks and cleans for these strangers in order to make enough money to raise her three children. George is the youngest. He's the only boy. At the bank, he works hard. He doesn't have much formal education, but he's really good with numbers. His job title is junior bookkeeper. Working at the bank is a great way for a 20-year-old from a poor family to meet wealthy people. So George spends a lot of his time asking questions about how he can get rich. The answer he kept hearing, which still rings true today, was real estate. A lot of the men he talks to are buying buildings in the city and renting them out. But George doesn't have enough money to do that. That won't really work for him. Instead, he starts looking at parcels of undeveloped land just beyond the edge of town. So he spends his free time traveling around the countryside, scouting potential properties. The bank, not surprisingly, wants to know what these properties look like before they approve a mortgage for them. So George goes to a store and buys a camera. Only problem is, this is 1875. Back then, a camera looked a lot different from what you take pictures with today. It was a box, about two feet square, and it needed to sit on this huge tripod. The photographer ducks their head under this cloth hood and in the semi-darkness adjusts the framing, then removes the lens cap to expose the film. Well, it's actually not film. There are these things called wet plates, and they're pieces of glass that you poured chemicals on in a dark room. Then, before they dry out, you cover it from the light, you carry it from the dark room to the camera, you slide it in, you expose it to the light, then you cover it up again, you remove it, take it back to the dark room, and then you print your photograph using a long list of other chemicals in this special paper. Which is all very manageable if you're in a studio and have your lab right next to you, but George is in the middle of nowhere. He has to bring a wagon load of chemicals and set up a tent to use as a darkroom. His pictures, not surprisingly, were terrible. And I'm not saying that was the only reason, but his dreams of a real estate empire went bust. George decided to turn his attention to photography, specifically to solving the wet plate dilemma. Some European photographers had been dabbling with the idea of dry plates using a slightly different mix of chemicals, and then you could prepare your plates at home before you headed out and let them dry, then transport them to where you wanted to take your pictures. George still had his day job at the bank, but he spent all his nights in his mother's kitchen mixing chemicals in her sink, trying to perfect this new approach. He'd work late into the night trying different combinations, and each morning he would show up at the bank with his fingers stained black from all the chemicals. Five years later, he quit his job, and he opened his own company. He had six employees, and they manufactured and sold dry plates to photographers all around the northeastern part of the United States. And he said to his mother, You will never have to take in borders again. But there was a problem. George didn't have a patent on dry plating. It's one of those inventions that was developed simultaneously and independently by a whole bunch of different people around the same time. As a result, there's a lot of competition. George's little shop in Rochester can't compete with the big players. They're all basically selling the same thing and he can't match their scale. So he needs to do something different. That's when George had his big breakthrough. He discovered a way to do dry plating using flexible film. 
this film could be rolled up and stored in the back of a camera. It was way more convenient than the bulky, heavy, fragile glass plates everybody else was using. With this invention, photographers could just turn a crank handle and advance to the next frame. It was a brilliant idea. The convenience was off the charts. It was reported on in photography magazines all over the world. And this time, George had a patent. But, I know, there's always a but, isn't there? Well, the problem is the quality of the images from this flexible film isn't quite equal to the glass. Professional photographers refused to adopt this new technology because none of them were willing to sacrifice clarity for ease of use. Put yourself in George's shoes. He's invented something truly amazing, but the establishment, the working professionals that control the photography business, they refuse to use it. Now, if you've ever listened to a single episode of this show, you know what word is coming, and that word is paradigm. George was up against an established paradigm. He had to find a way to break through. And his response to being stonewalled is classic. What he did was instead of trying to convince all the professionals to use his invention, he said, What if there was a camera so easy to use that anyone could take photographs? And that's what he did. He designed a camera that incorporated his invention, film on a roll, and sold it to the masses at the very affordable price of $1 for the camera, 15 cents for the film. And it was enough to take 100 pictures. George wasn't just selling a product, he was selling a service. Here's how it worked. If you'd used up the film in your camera, you mail the whole thing to Rochester, and then George's company develops the film for you. Three weeks later, you get your developed photos mounted on cards, and you get your camera back fully loaded with a new roll of film. The only thing this groundbreaking product needed was a name. George was still living with his mother at this point, and one evening they were sitting at the table playing anagrams, which is kind of like Scrabble. You have these tiles that all have letters, and you're just moving them around and making words. And they weren't really playing the game. They were just looking around for the perfect combination of letters. They didn't even have a name in mind. But George did have some parameters. A trademark should be short, vigorous, incapable of being misspelled. It must mean nothing. If the name has no dictionary definition, then it will only be associated with your product. Also, for some reason, he really liked the letter K. It seems a strong, incisive sort of letter. So, that night in their kitchen, they settled on five tiles. K, O, D, A, and another K. Kodak. The rest of the story is pretty well known, I guess. They sold thousands of these Kodak cameras. George Eastman became one of the richest people in America. And photography evolved from a task for only professionals to become something anyone could do. And the name Kodak became one of the most recognizable brands in the world. Would the camera have been just as successful if he'd called it the Eastman? Or maybe offered something called the flexible film imaging device? I don't know. I mean, I have my thoughts, but what do you think? I mean, really... What's in a name? I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Symar. This is the first episode of season two, so I'll start by giving you a rundown of what we do here. So we tell these stories from history, like the one I just told you about George Eastman playing anagrams with his mom, and we try to learn something from them. Then we tell another story from history, and we try to learn something from that. And in those stories, we use actors to read things that famous people said, like this. 
You push the button, we do the rest. Or when we can, we use old newsreels or commercials. It's new. It's now. Newest Instamatic camera outfits from less than $18, only from Kodak. And lastly, we always finish with a story from right now that connects those two first stories. You see, Symar, that's the company that makes this show, is a medical research group, and they're working on a paradigm-busting breakthrough in the way we treat type 2 diabetes. So we're going to look at the challenges they're facing in their research, their clinical trials, even in their marketing, and compare that to what scientists, inventors, and researchers have faced in the days gone by. Sound like fun? Great. This is episode one, What's in a Name? In the 1840s, about 10 years before George Eastman was born, the map of Europe looked very different than it does today. Right in the middle, where you'd expect to see Germany, were dozens of principalities. Basically, they were autonomous city-states. All around them, powerful empires were forming, and the best way to survive was to unite. So, they did. Now, whenever there's political upheaval, there are winners and there are losers. And the people who feel they're getting the raw end of the deal often pack their bags and leave. That's why millions of Germans sailed across the Atlantic to the New World. Protestant Germans mostly settled in America. Catholic Germans headed for Texas, because Texas at the time was part of Mexico, which was more pro-Catholic. That was all cool until the Mexican-American War broke out. When the Americans took control of Texas, the Germans headed south. And that is how we end up with a large German population living in Mexico in the middle to late 1800s. In fact, one of my favorite characters in Mexican history is Ferdinand Maximilian Joseph Maria von Habsburg Lothringen, more commonly known as Maximilian I of Mexico. He was the emperor of Mexico for four years. I know, right? Mexico had a German-speaking emperor for four years. It's crazy. Now, if you know anything about Mexico, you know it's hot. And if you know anything about Germans, you know that they love beer. Well, Maximilian was a Mexican-German. He wouldn't go anywhere without his two personal brewmasters. Yes, he had two of them. He even opened up his own brewery to ensure he and his court always had plenty of refreshing lager on hand. Now, beer was popular with the Germans, but when Mexicans wanted to kick back and relax, they drank pulque. Pulque is made from fermented sap from agave. It's like a thick milkshake, and it tastes sort of like sour yeast, kind of. Which, maybe not what you want on a hot summer afternoon by the beach, but it's definitely what those Mexicans wanted. Seeing an opportunity, one company decided to try to market beer for Mexicans. It had a light, refreshing taste. It had very little hops or bitterness. It had more carbonation than traditional German beers. It was a beer made by Mexicans for Mexicans. All it needed was a name. In the city of Puerto Vallarta, there's a church called Our Lady of Guadalupe. And at the top of that tower is a beautiful piece of architecture. It's this intricate crown that is visible from anywhere in the city. That crown, which in Spanish is corona, 
was chosen as the name for the new beer. And on every can or bottle, you'll always see a golden crown right under the name. Corona quickly became the most popular beer in the country, and since this was during U.S. prohibition, it also became quite popular in the U.S. Today, Corona is the number one selling imported beer in America. Also, in a weird ironic twist, it's very popular in Germany. So, having a distinctly Spanish name to differentiate itself from the German beers was a big part of Corona's success in Mexico. And it's a big part of why it's so popular in other countries today. I mean, Corona isn't just from Mexico. It is Mexico for millions of beer drinkers around the world. That's its marketing. I guess Guinness is like that, right? Guinness is from Ireland. Foster's from Australia. Maybe Budweiser from America. But they don't really encapsulate the whole country the way Corona does. I mean, if I say to a group of people, what pops into your mind when I say Mexico, a lot of people would say Corona is in the top three. Here, let me try another one. What pops into your mind when I say Wuhan, China. The male victim still hospitalized in isolation after recently arriving from Wuhan, China. The first confirmed U.S. case of the contagious coronavirus now in Washington state. The word coronavirus has been on everyone's lips for almost two years now. In fact, if you Google Corona, the first nine results have nothing to do with the beer and nothing to do with Mexico. A name that used to be associated with Find Your Beach or Miles Away From Ordinary is now found in headlines about quarantines, ICU cases, and variants. Maybe the most ironic headline is this one. Production of Corona beer is being halted due to the coronavirus. Yeah, the factory in Mexico where they made the beer was deemed non-essential during the pandemic and was forced to close its doors for a couple of weeks. Combine the factory shutdown, the negative connotations around the name, and the fact that restaurants and bars where people like to drink beer were closed for large chunks of the year, it was not a good year for the Corona Brewery. Last week, a PR firm claimed that 38% of beer-drinking Americans would not purchase Corona beer under any circumstance. That was a news story that floated around social media for a week or so. But there was a flaw in the methodology of that survey. Apparently, those 38% were people that weren't going to be drinking Corona anyway because... The company claims it's simply not true. Instead, sales have actually climbed by 5% in the United States over the last four weeks. Profits for the company that owns Corona rose 13% last year. I guess all those people locked up at home still wanted to feel like they were going to the beach. <laughs> this is the point in the podcast where we pivot from the historical to the contemporary. Now, maybe the most glaring and honestly unsettling examples of the importance of a name come from a study done by researchers at the University of Toronto, Harvard Business School, and Stanford. What they did is they sent resumes to dozens of companies, and these resumes were all exactly the same. The work experience, the education, all of it was totally identical, but there was one difference among them, and the difference was the name. Some of the resumes had names like Mary Walsh or Colin Dempsey, and others had names like Latoya Robinson and Jamarcus Washington. Resumes with minority racial cues, like Black or Asian names, get 30 to 50% fewer callbacks than otherwise equivalent resumes. That's researcher Sonia Kang presenting her findings. If you send out a resume with a name on it, like Tyrone or Jada or Wei or Ming, it's 30 to 50% less likely to get a callback than a completely equivalent resume with a name on it, like Emily or Hannah or Scott 
for Logan. You can make a lot of conclusions from that study, but clearly names do have an impact on people's perceptions. Saimar, meanwhile, wasn't looking for a job. The founder, Dr. Wayne Lott, had a scientific discovery that needed a new name. They'd found a hormone that naturally occurs in your body, and when it's absent, you develop type 2 diabetes. They'd been calling it HISS, H-I-S-S. It's an acronym for Hepatic Insulin Sensitizing Substance. HISS was a real problem because it's the fundamental hormone that explains how all the rest of the stuff works. It's the thing that most pharma companies are interested in. That's John West. He does a lot of the product development, branding, and marketing work for Symar. I want people to say, I went and got my cholesterol checked, I got my glucose checked, my insulin checked, and I got my blank, hiss, whatever the new word is, checked. They needed to fill in that blank with something better than hiss. Hiss is a verb in English. It's not a noun. So when you try to use in sentences, use it in copy, everyone understood it was a problem. So we wanted to have something that was kind of like catchy, like a catchy tune or, or something that rhymed with something else and described it if it could. These are very high bars that you're setting to try to come up with a name. This isn't just a marketing problem. The name of something drastically impacts whether or not people will embrace it. And when you're naming something you believe will be a key step towards eliminating type 2 diabetes, well, people's lives literally depend on choosing the right name. We were just ideating on names like crazy for months, hundreds and hundreds of names. And then you say names keep coming back up because you forgot, you put on the list. That brings us to John's Eureka moment. Something else that you have to know about me is that I'm married to Wayne's daughter and Kelly and I, we've been married for 22 years or something, a long time now. And from the very beginning, she had it built into our marriage contract that we had to go camping every year. And so every year I know there's gonna be some time where I need to unplug. So we were camping in Jasper and I'm walking around the lake early in the morning. I started thinking about hiss, hepatic insulin sensitizing substance. So hepatic means it's from the liver, so I like that. The other side that I was playing with was the chemical itself. Could we name something about the chemical? The chemical is part of insulin, you know, it's split in half, it's a B chain of insulin. If you hear insulin, you're like, oh yeah, that's diabetes. So I want someone to hear something that kind of rhymes with insulin that makes them think maybe it's the diabetes space. And so how do I add liver into it? Like liver oscillin, you know what I mean? There's literally stupid names like that. And then hepatolin, like, oh, that's a name that it kind of meets all these criteria. When he got back from camping, he prepared his list of options with hepatolin right at the top. So all of them had to go back up to Wayne for final approval, period. Nobody in our family thought any way different. Nobody was arguing any way different. It had to be Wayne's decision. Wayne looked over the list, then he took a walk himself. An hour later, he called John and said that hepatolin was the winner. I mean, it's never as simple as that. They still had to make sure the URL was available and make sure the name hadn't been trademarked by someone else. But that, that's all paperwork. So now, that hormone that comes from your liver, something that's always been there, finally has a name. But will it stick? Will it become a commonly used word like insulin? If this name gets out there and is on the lips of 100 people or 1,000 people or 100,000 people, at some point we'll get to a tipping point where you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I hope that hepatolin can last 100 years. Insulin's names last 100 years. So that's my hope. I'm hoping that it has a durability. That's what you can hope for. So that's it. I'm Dan Riskin. 
Thanks for joining me on Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. Next episode, we're going to tell the story of the worst medical trial in recent memory. Six men are in critical condition after a drug trial gone horribly wrong. Doctors attending say they don't really know what drug was being trialed. Some of the patients are described as having swollen heads and bellies. It's an event that became known as the Elephant Man Trials. Keep an eye out for that one. The Trouble with Trials. Oh, one last thing. That first camera that George Eastman invented, the Kodak, it was really simple. There wasn't even a viewfinder, so you didn't frame up your shot the way you would with later cameras. You just pointed it in the general direction you wanted to take a picture in, and you hoped for the best. Well, that led to the photographs getting a new name. And it was a name taken from hunting. See, hunters already had a term for when you just point your gun and you quickly fire without really taking aim. They called it a snapshot. <laughs>